This is Channel 253. In this episode of Crossing Division. People respond to very quick talking points, and I think Democrats in general are not the best at condensing and making things easily digestible. I've spent my whole life doing exactly that. Mm -hmm. So whether that's translating for my mom, who's limited English, or my family, my neighborhood, my apartment complex, you know, whatever that was, they're like, go go get Yasmin in there. Mm -hmm. Like, she'll, you know, she'll figure it out. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. Hi, this is Evelyn Lopez. Today on Crossing Division, we are going to continue our conversation with the individuals who have been nominated to fill the 27th Legislative District Senate seat. Now, as you'll recall... Our state senator, Jeannie Darneal, decided to leave the Senate. She's got a great job she's going to with the Department of Corrections, and that created an opening. So we have been through a process, and it has been a real process, where uh, individuals who were interested in being considered for the Senate seat applied, made their best pitches to the local Democratic precinct committee officers, and out of that group, there were three individuals selected to be nominated, and they will go to the county council next week for an appointment. So with me today is the second interview I'm doing on these, and this is with nominee Yasmin Trudeau. Welcome, Yasmin. Thank you so much, Evelyn. This is great. Well, and I should say up front, I know Yasmin from work. I work, I'm a part-time attorney at the Attorney General's Office, and Yasmin is the legislative uh, director, coordinator, legislative guru for everyone in the office. Um, so I know her a little bit from work, but not so much. And I'm really happy to have this conversation. So Yasmin, let's start, and I already told this a little bit, but you can embellish on it. What's your current job and what school is closest to your neighborhood? Absolutely. So um, currently what I do for a living is I work as the Legislative Affairs Director and Tribal Affairs Manager for Attorney General Bob Ferguson. So that is uh, really anything that interfaces between the Attorney General's office and the legislature. That includes passing legislation. That includes, um, you know, providing updates when legislators need our assistance on legal issues. Um, and then tribal affairs manager simply means that I uh, coordinate with our tribal liaison um, on how we just improve our relationship with tribes. So I could go into that further, but that really is the main goal of tribal affairs is to focus how the state can better the relationship that they that we have um, with tribal governments. Well, and that's kind of um, a significant change, isn't? <clears throat> excuse me, isn't it? Because we did. I don't think the office had really an unofficial tribal liaison and contact person with prior administrations. That's correct. Uh, so I started in the at the office in September of 2017. Um, you know, I. Like I've always done in life, I just ask a lot of questions when I don't know what's going on. Um, and that emerged that we had not had a tribal liaison, certainly since um, Bob Ferguson was attorney general. But there was the desire to do it. But I think when we create new positions, especially when we're trying to call in community, um, we have to do it with real intention and make sure that we're not furthering harm with mm -hmm. our good intentions. So I did uh, I did that in addition to legislative work for about a year until we were able to bring on um, Asa Washings, who's our uh, tribal liaison now, who comes from Native and tribal communities. So that was really important for me to set up a program and work with the attorney general to, 
Yeah, to do it intentionally and thoughtfully and be able to invite, invite folks in that really have the true expertise and mm-hmm. can guide us in the right way. But historically, the AG's office has not been, um, you know, it's been on the, the other side of a lot of issues um, when it comes to tribes. So we had a lot of work to do. Yeah. Still when, do. When I started with the AG's office, it seemed like mostly we were um, hearing about tribal legal issues in terms of lawsuits, right. you know, either gambling uh, issues or um, tax-based issues on tribal land. Yeah, and it's it. that's absolutely right. I think most of the ways that we heard about it is where there was some kind of legal dispute, which doesn't, you know, the opportunity to work past legal disputes is beneficial in a number of ways, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you could talk about just the, the sort of, I guess, moral challenges, right? When you're when you're debating on issues, especially with with tribes who've been here since time immemorial. Um, but I think also when it comes to, you know, taxpayer costs mm-hmm. um, and other things, it's just it's it's a good idea to try and avoid where you can. Um, you know, it's sort of inevitable that I think that, that state and tribal governments will end up on the other side of issues. But how can we mitigate that and just create better relationships so that we don't have to go there unless absolutely necessary? And um, one of the things I'd highlighted that we were able to adopt, and I certainly can't take credit for for the idea or, you know, that that all goes to the, the attorney general and President Von Sharp. But we have a policy now, which is the first in its country that we're aware of in any state agency that requires free prior and informed consent before the attorney general in his independent authority. Um, so that means anything outside of his statutory obligations to, to boards, commissions and agencies before he pursues a program. We we now are required to get consent um, from any impacted tribe. Mm-hmm. So that's that's pretty big. That's I, a gigantic change. It's been amazing. I mean, just it's sort of got three buckets. Um, one is notice, one is consent, and one is consultation. But sim- like notice, we treat so broadly so that we are able to capture anything that we think could you know be beneficial for a tribe to be aware of including you know initiatives that are filed including you know just anything that our office touches that could potentially be of interest to to tribes we've treated that as incredibly broad and it's been amazing mm-hmm. it it really has been amazing mm-hmm. it's it's nice to see frankly you know i mean tribal governments they're sovereign entities that's right so to have the state engage in this manner is a is an extremely respectful an appropriate protocol, I think. Thank you. I mean, it's it's been an honor, honestly, to to work on it in this way. But again, I, I can't take any credit. I'm just I'm a, I'm a cog in the wheel of implementing implementing this uh, this policy. But um, pinch me. Good. It's been yeah, awesome. that's really good. And what school do you live nearby? Uh, so high school doesn't matter. So I well, just figure it's easy. Sometimes it's easier than saying a neighborhood. Like I don't always know people's neighbor the totally. name of it. Well, what's really awesome is I actually uh, live right next to my my own high school uh, that I graduated from, which is Foss. Oh, good. So I live in the in central Tacoma, mm-hmm. um, and it's right down the street from me, which is that's that, nice. Yeah, it is really nice. Yeah, it's, I get um, to drive by it a lot. Where did you live before you lived in Tacoma? Well, so I've lived in and out of Tacoma for most of my whole life. Mm-hmm. So I guess it would just depend on when. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'd say I'm an I five corridor baby. In a lot of ways, I, I moved around a lot. Um, just in high school, I lived in 11 different homes. Wow. So from the time I was about 13 is when I went into foster care. Um, and then I sort of floated in and out, was part of the formal system, and then I wasn't. Um, so, I mean, this last time that I moved, I moved for law school. Um, and that's where I went to Seattle U for law school. Mm-hmm. And then I got a job while I was up there. Um, and about... Basically, as soon as I found out I was pregnant, I was trying to egg my husband to to move back to Tacoma yeah. since we met 10 years ago. Um, 
But, you know, so I knew right away that there was that moment to to come back and put roots into Calma. So it's a little bit complicated because mm-hmm. I've, I've moved in and out. But I think most people who have lived through the school of hard knocks probably understand that. But yeah. Tacoma's always been home base. Yeah. Well, I didn't realize that you had been in the foster care system. Yeah. Was that... Did you have a reasonably okay experience, or was that really a pretty dreadful? Um, I, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one particular family that I thought was absolutely wonderful, um, but I, it was only a short time that I stayed there because they prioritized, as as, as they should, I totally support, um, teenage moms. Oh, so yeah. moms that had just had babies, right? And mm-hmm. so I was there for a short while because I sort of fit the age demographic mm-hmm. and, and the, you know, sorry, I guess gender that they were— they. They said they had open space for um, the second place. Not so great. Um, you know, I I think it's always a mixed bag mm-hmm. for everyone. It kind of depends on your relationship to the world at that time, yeah. as well as um, the supports and understanding. And and frankly, you know, I don't think that there were a lot of um, homes in the area there was that that really understood the cultural aspects of what I was going through, not mm-hmm. just the the sort of reality of you know whether I had a place to stay. Right. So that can get really complicated. Yeah. There's a there's just so many layers yeah. that I think um yeah. I don't know what the answer is on that one. That's a big that's a big pickle. Yes, it is. Um well this kind of maybe relates, maybe doesn't rate relate, but what is something that you experienced that you would say was it may have been a small thing, it might have been a giant thing, but it's something that you look back on now and think, well, that was actually very formative. That really helped shape me. Yeah. I mean, I kind of going back to, to what inspired me, you know, about the people here in the 27th um, was grace, I guess. I mean, I don't know what people saw in me back then. I think I was just a little bit of a rabble rouser with a backpack full of clothes and a whole lot of dreams to change the world. Didn't have any idea what that meant. Um, but when I really needed, you know, I'd, I'd say at Foss, I had a, I moved and, and moved to Tacoma to live with an aunt who was just a few years older than me. So we we're more like cousins, mm-hmm. we were five, about five years older. Um, you know, I was, what, 15 at the most recent time. I, that's, that's kind of what got me in and out of Tacoma. Um, so she was, what's the math on that, 20? Not, 20, not even yeah. 21. Um, and she, you know, got in her own life situation and had to move across the country um, to have a baby, and I really, I had just gotten the Gates scholarship, mm. which was only because I was at FOSS, and frankly, someone was like, do you want to go to college? And then I found out you have to apply to go to mm. college. Um, and I just turned to a friend in one of my classes, one of my dear friends, Sami Mose, who we just got along from the first day, and I said, I don't actually know where I'm going tonight, because mm-hmm. I think it was a question about a school dance or some event. And she's like, well, you're coming with me. And uh, she was part—sorry, this kid gets me emotional. She was part of a very tight-knit Samoan community and with open arms. So they just pulled you in. To pull me in. And, um, yeah. Makes all the difference. It really does. Yeah. And sometimes these are emotional. Yes. You know? (laughs) They are. Because it's real. Yeah. Right? Well, taking off from that, let's take Mm -hmm. a step back and say, why did you decide to put your name in for the Senate position? Boy, yeah, that, it, yes, taking a step back. Um, you know, I always thought if there was an opportunity to do right and to sort of give back to my community, I wanted to take it. Mm-hmm. So for me, the whole journey through law school and wanting to work on policy 
was all to sort of understand the symptoms, you know, the, or the or the systems around me, right? Mm-hmm. To understand kind of why things happen the way they happen. Because again, being that inquisitive kid that was like, I don't know why, like, I would ask the question, mm-hmm. and someone will try to try to get the answer. Um, I think for me, I saw policy as a place where you could be really proactive. Mm-hmm. Where you could bring in, you know, your you could bring in lived experience. You could you could listen to other people. You could collaborate, and you could really try to make people's lives better on the front end, as opposed to which you know, no offense, my husband my husband's a lawyer. He's a trial lawyer. I'm mm-hmm. you know I'm barred in Washington. I understand the advocacy once laws passed, but I was in a constitutional law class where a lot of the attorneys that were second and third generation, particularly second and third generation attorneys argued that the law was neutral and it was up to advocates. Right. Right. And I just fundamentally disagreed. I don't think you can look at, I mean, there's all kinds of laws you can point out, but specifically looking at Jim Crow, looking at all these other things we were also studying and tell me that there wasn't some intention behind folks in the room. Mm -hmm. Um, I just wasn't buying it. So policy became the space. And then this opportunity I mean, who knew? Right. Uh, we've had great leaders here for a really long time. Never thought that it was a, you know, a chance to really step in. Um, and then when it came up, I just, it ignited something in me that I didn't realize. So instead of just sort of grabbing people from outside of the room to try and convince them to do the right thing, what does it mean to be in the room, mm-hmm. you know, talking to colleagues about why it's the right thing, right? So leaning more into my personal experience and my personal level of advocacy to try and engage, you know, engage other legislators and figure it out from the inside as mm-hmm. opposed to working a little more from the outside. Mm-hmm. So I opportunity like that's kind of, they come up once in a lifetime. That's really true. Well, and it strikes me too, I mean, for all of the things that you've done, and you've really done quite a variety of things, um, this is the first chance that you get to set the agenda. Yes. And it is, it, it weighs heavy. Does it? Uh, yeah, it does. I mean, I think a lot, it is one thing to be, you know, supported because you've done good work, but it's also good work that, again, is somebody else's agenda, right? I mean, mm-hmm. what I do is I go in and I, I'm incredibly lucky to work for Bob Ferguson. Like, mm-hmm. I, I really believe that. I think he's someone who really wants to do the right thing, agree or disagree with, you know, what right. he thinks is the right thing. He wants to do the right thing. Um, but governing is different. Governing is different. You're responsible for your own decisions. You know, you're you're that's why working with community is important because everybody also feels the brunt of those decisions. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a level of responsibility, not just in the the weight of governing and, and what that means to make my own decisions and set my own policy. But I think also it, it, it impacts, they, mm-hmm. you know, my my specific decision, my specific vote, my specific comments that might come up in any of those situations. Someone will feel that. Yeah. And that's heavy. That is big. That's heavy. It is. What do you think, if you've thought about it, which I think you probably have, but what do you think would be some of your key areas of emphasis or your key interests? You know, as you know, well know, you know, you get in and you have a chance to get on certain committees, and that tends to kind of put you on a path right. on something. You know, we have Jake Fias. His path was getting more and more in transportation, which suited his background and his interests, but... Right. Well, what do you think yours might be? Well, I mean, I've been pretty open in this process because I do think that, you know, in here in Tacoma and here in the 27th, I think there's a lot of opportunity um, in this seat. So I think being able to hear from community what priorities are mm-hmm. is really, really important. And I think, you know, as a result of that, there's sort of three areas that I've identified that I'd have interest in. Now, 
I will be sort of at the you know, bottom rung of the ladder, if right. you will, when I come in as an appointee in the second year of the biennium. So the other thing is I really, really don't want to overpromise and underdeliver. Mm-hmm. But I think if there were three areas that I've heard come up over and over again, and, and then another another area, but one that I have a little bit less um, sort of direct policy experience on, um, one is, you know, public safety issues. So the Law and Justice Committee, I interact probably 90 percent of the work that the attorney general's office does or engages on comes through that committee. I know the members well. I know the issues are hot here in Tacoma. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, across the state and across the country. And frankly, you could argue across the world, people are paying attention um, to, to how we're, you know, what solutions we're coming up with. So I think that's one where I could where I could plug in. I've got a legal background. I've also got the community organizing piece and the relationships, I think, to be able to lean in. I really would like to continue the legacy of, of Jeannie Darneal and Health and Human Services, not only for continuity, but also because I've probably lived through almost every state service mm-hmm. um, that that can be offered. I like to call myself a product of the state's investment, mm-hmm. um, you know, good or bad. I've got both critiques and, you know, appreciation. And sometimes I think we also need to let folks know where the state, you know, where we could continue doing programs or maybe where I've seen programs drop off mm-hmm. that were really helpful to me. So that's just appealing because I'm like, oh, man, I've. I lived it. I sit in conversations all the time where I'm like, but it, but it's not my conversation, right? I'm not right. leading. So, um, and then the other one is related to housing. Mm-hmm. I know housing is really important. So, to the extent that the state um, can make investments in housing, you know, a lot of things are done on the local level. But I think there's a lot of opportunity for the state to create sideboards and regulation, and also to invest. Um, and then one I'm interested in, but I don't know. You know, I'd have to see what shakes out just given the composition of committees is environment. Mm-hmm. I know the environmental issues are really important, um, you know, here to the people in the 27th. And so I would like to work on those issues, but I can't claim to, you know, know exactly what they are. I, my North Star, I guess, is that um, on those issues is that my mom's home village of Noakali, Bangladesh, is likely going to be underwater in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. That terrifies me. Yeah, that's terrible. So, I, I operate from a place of urgency um, and importance, but I think that's a place where I would love to learn a lot more. Well, and this is, I don't exactly know. I mean, I think you're right. I think you don't have a lot of control over assignments when you're the new newest of the new. Right. But I think the challenge is, I mean, you have a very strong intellect, and so you have a lot of, I'm going to say, a lot of interest in things as, you know, interesting problems and interesting policy issues and you know, things that would be fascinating to work on and solve. And then there's also things, I think, that are probably deeply personally important to you. Yes. And so, and I don't know which is the better thing to do. You know, do you throw yourself into things that are going to consume you because they're so important to you personally? Or do you allow yourself a little bit of distance and work on things that are intellectually stimulating? No, absolutely. I mean, my hope is there there could be some, I guess, synergy uh, mm-hmm. between the two of them because I do think that, you know, lived experience just it shapes the way that you look at issues. So, yeah. I mean, I thank you for the intellect. <laughs> I often take that as a compliment. <laughs> um, but truthfully, sometimes I think we focus almost a little too on one or the other, and I think mm-hmm. there's just a balance to be struck where if you have – if it's impacted you, I think you just – you you feel it, not that you can't care about it if it has an impact to you. That That is not what I'm saying at all, because mm-hmm. a lot of people are very empathetic to situations that they don't know or haven't lived through. But I think what I do now is process 
my feelings and my my emotions and my experiences, and then I figure out how to intellectually deliver them. Mm-hmm. So I would like to continue doing that because in some ways that's almost a little bit of an emotional buffer for me. Right. Um, and I've I've just learned to do that because you know even in the in the roles that I've had professionally, I can't avoid the emotional part. Mm-hmm. I just I don't. Yeah, I, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I don't either. <laughs> in uh, other uh, forums that I've seen, you mentioned that your family had been trafficked, so you've mm-hmm. had exposure to human trafficking. You've mentioned that you have a dear, dearly loved brother who's got developmental disability issues. And I think all of these things factor into your view of the world and your compassion for the world. But yeah, do you do you overload on them or do you allow yourself... A buffer. I think it's kindness to allow yourself a bit of a buffer, to be honest. I really appreciate that. My husband would agree. Um, <laughs> we've, we, we talk about these issues a lot because mm-hmm. um, I think I knew when I was going to, you know, when we were talking about what types of jobs we wanted out of law school. And I knew that would always be a concern. Mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, you know, part of not going into direct client lawyering is because there is t- such a person to person, like emotional piece where, frankly, I don't think I could sleep if I didn't achieve something for my client, mm-hmm. um, especially if I worked in areas that, you know, have, have touched me like immigration or mm-hmm. trafficking, domestic violence, those types of issues. Um, but, I mean, I, I hope that I can find that that balance and that grace. But I think if what I say, you know, what what gets me up every day and putting my shoes on is to try and do something that can better the lives of other people. And what you, what you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, part of why I think life has gotten so con- – like I have all these issues is because trauma is complicated. Yeah. So the original story of my family, like that, that is a story that belongs to all of us. Do you want to tell that story? I can if you'd like. Sure. I can give you <laughs> – Well, I don't know that I, – I mean I was very – touched to hear your story. Thank you. And I heard a, a little snippet of it. So I, on the one hand, I don't want to feel like you need to parade your trauma in front of the world. On the other hand, I think that if that's a story that you think people should hear about you, then this is a good opportunity for that. Well, let me tell you, using a term like human trafficking, I sort of deleted and rewrote that into my talking points a thousand <laughs> times. Yeah. Because I was like, this is so, there, there's a lot of a conversation around it and a lot of interest in it, but there's so much miseducation around mm-hmm. the issue of trafficking. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, when I was in law school, I did a I worked on trafficking and immigration policy with a couple nonprofits, and I did an obs- what I thought was an obscure interview with the Seattle Times because they caught a little snippet of something uh-huh. I said at a press conference, and it ended up on the front page of the Sunday Seattle Times. Half of it was my face. And the title was called Putting a Face on Human Trafficking. Oh, that's not always helpful. No, it was incredibly devastating. Um, And I was really grateful that it was a three-day weekend because I had to sit with my snacks in the dark and my Netflix and just tune out everything. But since then, that was mm -hmm. 2013, I think I've, I've figured out a way— Anyway, I, so I'm happy to happy to share it, Evelyn, because I think um, it's important for people to understand what it is, too, because mm-hmm. it's so loaded. It could mean a, a lot of things. Right. But what I say is that I am a product of human trafficking, mm-hmm. and I come from a family of survivors. So that's the way that I frame it. So when I—well, my, my father was incredibly well-educated. He had a lot of privilege. He was, comes from a pretty white, affluent family or— White family is pretty affluent um, here in Washington State. Uh, Ended up uh, actually getting a Ph.D. um, in sociology from the University of Washington and then started working for the U.N. Um, He had had a lot of problems prior to when he met my family. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what sort of um, 
motivated his travel to other countries because he was having a lot of issues here. Um, you know, put it out there. My father has since passed. He passed a year ago, but he's a registered sex offender. He's clearly had a lot more before he met my family. But when he moved to Bangladesh, uh, he ended up meeting my family. Um, there's a little bit of grayness around who, but meeting an aunt and an uncle there, being introduced to my grandfather, wanting essentially to uh, marry my aunt first. Mm-hmm. Um, this is where it gets a little complicated, but then wanting to take on my, who, who was 16 at the time, and he was in his mid-40s. Mm-hmm. That happened, um, and apparently he was doing a lot of things that my aunt felt really uncomfortable about. She ended up running away, which was an incredible shame on our family, mm-hmm. um, particularly because they're so poor. When my dad met my grandfather, he was a subsistence farmer, and he had eight children that he could barely feed and keep alive. He never he went to school. You know, you can kind of—he's from a, from a very rural village. Um, and so what he said was, you know, I will make a lot of problems for you unless you let me marry your other daughter, who was 12 at the time that he wanted to marry her. So— um, And, you know, he had provided a little bit of land for my grandfather because of the arrangement with, you know, my aunt. Um, As you can imagine, everybody was very like, what is this? They thought he was American. They thought he was educated. They didn't understand. Um, But frankly, they didn't know what to do. I mean, at that point, my grandfather, he could have easily put him in jail and all Mm -hmm. of my family could have been broken apart. So um, even though he... I hate the word choice. We can talk about mm-hmm. the word choice, but, you know, what my grandfather, the situation he was in is he said, you know, he probably weighed his yeah. options. And well, I mean, the power differential is staggering. It's staggering. And that's why I get so the, the miseducation around trafficking is people often are like, well, you got your grandfather made the choice to do that. No. And I've become so deeply offended by that because yeah. I think all of us, we really ought to reexamine choice mm-hmm. in that power, you know, in that dynamic, mm-hmm. right, looking at the power differentials. Um, but in a nutshell, he he ended up agreeing as part of that deal to bring nine members of my family into the United States, mm-hmm. and he promised that they would work. And you know, but instead, he moved them onto a landlocked farm, forty-five acres out in Oakville, which is wow. in Grace Harbor County. Yeah, um, terrible, terrible working conditions. Um, you know, no running water. Um, you know, if you asked my father, he'd tell you, "Well, those are the circumstances that those folks are used to." So. Mm. Um, which is also deeply offensive and part mm-hmm. of why I really work to reconstruct the narrative around immigration reform as well um, yeah. and, and how we value our, um, you know, immigrant community members. But I think, um, you know, when the the impetus for when it finally broke open was actually my aunt, who was 14 at the time, decided that she could no longer live like that and she committed suicide. Oh. And so it just kind of you know, police showed up mm-hmm. and everybody didn't know what to do. Everyone's different ages. No one knew who was married to who. Nobody knew who spoke English. The cultural dynamics of my family mm-hmm. being Muslim was, you know, they didn't want to talk to male officers. Right. Bengali translators in 1988. I mean, good luck getting translators I'm now. Just, if there were, <laughs> if there even were any, especially yeah. not out in Grays Harbor. So that, I mean, that's, that's basically what happened. And then mm-hmm. from there, everybody split up. And again, I think trauma happen to everyone. And so yeah. everybody's got a different piece of that story and a different, um, and it looks a little different for every person, but that's that's the reality, I think, for anybody that's mm-hmm. that's lived through trauma is life is messy and complicated. And I think life is amazingly messy and complicated yeah. for a lot of people. Agreed. And until you have an opportunity to to talk and maybe ask, I think we don't realize 
how brutal it can be. You're so right. And actually, one of the things I really appreciate about you asking me that is I feel I feel self-conscious offering it because I think that sometimes people internalize, well, maybe my experience, like I can't talk to Yasmin about that because my right. experience. And to me, experiences are all relative. Mm-hmm. I have had friends who, you know, even try like that is you know such a foreign thing to them but maybe they have experienced a loss in their life mm-hmm. of a close friend or family member and that impact of that trauma is just as real right it's just as visceral it's not more or less or whatever but i think until we talk about trauma in a way that we can just be open and honest like we continue to not be able to work through our own yeah you know so yeah. Well, I think it's important for this process, too, in kind of a weird way, because outwardly, you, I mean, you look like you have your act together. You are an attractive young woman and you're ready to take on the world. And I think it's important for people to realize that that's true, but you also have a very lot of depth that you've experienced in your life. And that also informs your outlook and your perspective and what you would bring into the political process. I really, I, I just say thank you, Evelyn. Um, if anything, to me, what I've said through this whole process and just generally about leadership and a lot of my organizing experience to get other folks elected is that having lived experience, I think, is just so important. It's just mm-hmm. so important. Like, it is hard. It is, it is possible for people to make, you know, all kinds of great decisions and votes. But I think um, it's an area that I have seen as a space that I would like to call more people into. So if talking about my own lived experience and being vulnerable vulnerable about that helps to sort of demystify Mm -hmm. what it means to be a professional or work in policy or work in politics, that's a win. You know, we've seen this at the state legislature where the body may be debating something or looking at something and they are unable to really make progress or make change until one of their members speaks up and says, here is my story. And I remember this when they were looking at um, same-sex marriage. Mm -hmm. And I think it was Maureen Walsh from Spokane who finally spoke up and said, here's the story of my child. And, you know, it just happens again and again that that reframes the matter. And suddenly there's an opening for a much more honest discussion. And frankly, that's when our best laws result. So it is important. I couldn't agree more. I could not agree more. But that's the type of, you know, leadership and and that I have seen work and that I've seen call to me – but I think a lot of people with sort of lived experience also get really nervous of about course. what that means to put it out there because putting it out there is super intense. So, I mean, that's where it's like, hey, can, can we demystify? Can we get, mm-hmm. you know, we, we say we want diversity, but I think sometimes we focus that very surface. Very surface. Very surface. And I don't know that that does what we want it to do when we say that. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. that makes sense? It does make sense. Well, let's take a quick break, and then we'll get back into a little bit more about what you would expect to see at the Senate and um, problems you see facing Tacoma. Awesome. Okay. Hello, friends. This is Marguerite Martin, creator of MoveToTacoma.com and co-founder of Channel 253. It's bad out there, folks. Home prices in Pierce County are up 15% year over year. While it's no secret that the market is hot, you may not know that Tacoma has been the hottest housing market in the country for several years. 
there is an extreme shortage of homes for buyers to buy. Having a local Tacoma buyer's agent that specializes in the neighborhood and price range you're after can mean the difference between losing or winning the bid on your dream home. If you're looking to sell your current home and find something that meets your needs better, having a neighborhood expert handle your listing will impact how much money you net off of your sale. The right agent to market and sell a home on the West Slope might not be the same person who has the expertise and connections to find you an income generating duplex somewhere else. All agents have specialties, and I know the players for every niche. Best of all, it doesn't cost you anything. Great local agents are happy to pay me a finder's fee if you end up buying or selling, and you can rest easy knowing you're gonna get a great agent who specializes in exactly what you're looking for. If you wanna learn more, visit movetacoma.com and use the contact form. Thanks for listening to Channel 253. We're back, and before we plunge back into this interview, which is really interesting, I have to say, um, if you are not already a Channel 253 member, I hope you will consider joining us. It's $4 a month or $40 a year, and it helps support these types of conversations, which I think are really super important because we live in a world now where you always want to know more, but the newspaper just isn't covering stuff uh, and uh, big media isn't looking at Tacoma. This is one of the places where you can get actual conversations with actual people, and it matters. So I hope you will join us. All right, Yasmin, let me ask you this. So you're looking at going into the Senate, and you have experience working in the Senate. I uh, I mentioned earlier when I was talking to Desiree, I didn't have a very happy experience working with legislators when I was at, with the Public Disclosure Commission. Mm-hmm. And I was really taken aback, especially in the Senate, to find out that there was some real pettiness. Like, you know, I had a bill that was pretty much neutral about campaign finance issues and having, you know, one political leader, one of the leaders say, well, I'm not going to support that if this other legislator supports it. I won't do anything to give him a minute of floor time or a minute of credit. I will do everything in my power. It's dead. It's dead. If you And I just thought, wow. I mean, I, I had expected so much more. Wow. What do you feel like going into this place that is, you know, you'll be going in as a player, you know, right. not just as a facilitator and someone who's sort of lobbying the players. You are a player in this very partisan, very political environment. Absolutely. And and with all due respect to the <laughs> members of the state Senate, I think um, it's a place for big personalities yeah. and big priorities. Um, so I came, you know, I, I started working with the Senate as a legislative assistant, which, you know, if you're going to kind of talk about the hierarchy, you know, the legislative assistant is is who grabs the water, who does the scheduling, who does the, you know, who who makes sure that everybody's at the meeting, but also that nobody asks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's sort of that coordinator role, which allowed me to, I think, really observe the way that the Senate worked. It also let me observe the way certain strategies um, and personalities work. Uh, but again, without, you know, sort of being that fly on the wall, because you know, and LA's, LA's position is never to actually speak anything. It's only to do the do the task that needs to get done. Whatever that looks like in different offices, it's different. Um, but for me, I worked for a legislator that was really allowed me to be hands on, allowed me to dig into issues and allowed me to ask questions, even if they were to her, 
to be able to ask them in the room. Mm -hmm. So I really got an amazing experience those first two years. And then I moved on to caucus staff. So then as caucus staff, again, no, my role was to to research bills. Um, The year that I, so I staffed both the capital budget and the committee on water. I staffed a couple other uh, committees as well. Those were the two issues that came head to head in 2017. So in the 2017 session where we ended up with no capital budget because of a water, it was called the Hearst decision. Oh, yeah. So it was pitted against each other. And the Republican that was dominated both of those conversations were in both rooms. The Democrats were different. Mm -hmm. Um, There were also differing views on the Democratic side on how to address the water issue. So I was sort of in this like, I'm just taking it all in and I'm being responsive and I'm figuring it out. But again, it gave me that like next level. Like I, I see... I see sometimes where people, I think, get triggered to be a lot more defensive on issues. Um, I also come from just a generally a, a more trauma-informed approach, mm-hmm. which means that I try to just be a little int- more intentional and a little slow. When I see people's emotions build up, I try to understand what's the thing that's actually motivating you. Sometimes you don't get there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a reality. There's there's bills that I've worked on that— you know, even even Democratic legislators have slammed a door in my face, right, and been like, nope, that's too far for me. Like, um, so I've worked on all kinds of issues where I've seen those personalities, but I just try to have as even keel, regardless of where I stand, and, and folks, you know, Bob is very clear about where he stands on his politics right. and his policies. There's no, there's no question about that, but I'm always respectful I always, I'm all about calling, I've said this, I think, at the forum, but I'm calling issues out, but calling people in. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you don't call them in, and mm-hmm. you just have to figure out a plan B. But that's always my first my first go. So I have done that through this job now for the mm-hmm. last four years, and I have to say that um, very few doors are slammed in my face because generally I'm like, look, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. Here's what we're trying to do. Can we get on board or not? Mm-hmm. And if it's not, then we have to just figure out next steps because you're also not going to you're not going to be um, productive trying to get people to come out of that petty. Right, uh, you know, right. like at that point, you're just like, OK, well, let's figure it out. Is it some, sometimes it means scrapping the whole thing? And we've had some bills where we're like, oh, OK, this doesn't go on the agenda next year. This bill is dead. Mm-hmm. Um and you just have to be really honest about that. Mm-hmm. I'm honest in every direction. This is what killed the bill. Well, I know from the AG's office perspective, you've been pushing on some things that are just don't seem to move. Like, and I'm thinking of the gun-related things. Yeah. You know, the, what do you call it, the giant ammunition. The large-capacity um, magazines. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And some other things. And it just, um, yeah. So I know you've had experience where it's like there are people, be they Democrats or Republicans, who are just not going to hear you. Yes. <laughs> and, I, and I think that that's OK. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when you know who's for or against something, honestly, that just helps the vote count because you're like, <laughs> OK, well, I don't have to knock on your door and get that vote. I hear that's where you're true. at. Um, I think there's creative ways to, to engage a conversation, even if it doesn't mean that a bill gets passed. I think if you look at how far certain bills have gotten that's progress in and of itself. So gun violence prevention, I mean, that those were priorities for the attorney general well before mm-hmm. I came along, right? You take an issue like death penalty repeal. That one's more baffling to me, honestly, than gun violence prevention. I agree. Um, which, which we could chat about that. But I think part of my motivation in sort of growing the majority and organizing to get people elected has also been motivated in that. Because I think when you grow a majority, and particularly if you grow a progressive, progressive majority— 
that's when the dynamics start to change and you don't have folks who are, you know, and we'll see what shakes out with redistricting. Mm -hmm. Legislative districts and the politics in those districts are really, really tough. It's not like I don't understand that. It's certainly with especially with some of the well, we don't have many left, but like rural Democrats. Um, But, you know, I think we are moving in the right direction. And I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, in the next couple of sessions, if we continue to see the trend that we've been seeing now with getting folks elected, I mean, I think we've seen all kinds of stuff that we never thought yeah. could happen. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the hope is alive. The dream <laughs> is still alive. But is there anything you is there anything like that you worry about going into that arena? Is there anything that you sort of think, okay, I'm going to have to really sort of gird my loins to take this on? Yes. Um, I mean, as you can imagine, I think lots of folks are already coming out of the woodwork um, on different issues and. I think because I've developed a reputation of just always being willing to listen, I'm very firm. And, you know, even if I'm like, hey, this is this is my bottom line, I'll listen. Mm-hmm. But, like, here's my bottom line. Um, I think folks um, are, are reaching out. I think there's a, there's going to be a lot of pressure. Whoever, right? Not right. just assuming that it will be me in the account. I hope it's me. But whoever, there's a lot of pressure on how folks think that they might engage you mm-hmm. or how, well— this happened, so then can you do this, right? Mm-hmm. There are a lot of sort of exchanges, not all of them negative, right? I mean, I think sometimes when you're supporting and strategy building and coalition building, you do need to have, you know, those those things, but, but not where it compromises your values. Mm-hmm. And so I think for me coming in, again, as the person who's making the decisions and having to be very firm with folks that I may have engaged with on different, you know, issues lobbying— now it'll be up to me to say, no, this is my bottom line, mm-hmm. right? This is not on behalf of anyone else. I don't have that cover. This this is this is Yasmin's bottom line, which I'm not afraid of at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it but it's a challenge, right? It's different right. than anything I've ever experienced. So that's those are the call even even calls that I get now, I'm like, well, let let me tell you about you know how I plan to be. And if you still want to call me back, call me back. Right. Um but yeah, I mean, I think I think those are challenges, and who knows? Maybe maybe it'll be one of the. I, you know, I'm I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful with all of the sort of supportive outreach um, that I've gotten, especially from my Democratic colleagues, that um, it'll be a space where mm-hmm. if if it's me, that I'd be able to really thrive. But this thing's way heavy. Yeah, just, they, you know, they yeah. do because you you see where it can get complicated really quickly. Yeah. Um, but I've two of the electeds that I've directly staffed or I've learned a lot of really great skills. Good. Um, so. yeah. What do you think are, and you've kind of touched on this, but what, what would you say that you see as either the two or three most immediate issues or the biggest issues that um, are facing the 27th legislative district? And, you know, do you have any ideas on how to address them? I mean, I think you know, when I touched on this sort of housing, you yeah. know, it, or not sort of, when I touched on the housing issue, um, I know that's a huge thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know how you can travel anywhere in the 27th and not realize that we have a, you know, a serious issue when it comes to folks that are unhoused. I mean, on a on a personal level, I'm like, oh, my God, the, you know, it's getting cold. It's mm-hmm. Things are happening. There's real humans that that are, you know, we— we are not taking care of, um, however you feel about the issue. I mean, that's just the reality that we that we exist in. Um, and I think on that same note, I think there's so many conversations around public safety. And as they touch the legislature, a lot of them are because of decisions and um, that the legislature has made on policy. But I think there's I think there is often 
I don't know if this exactly answers your question, but I think mm-hmm. there's often sort of some disruption in translation between what the legislature and what electeds are doing and the communities that they're serving and why, you know, and getting to understand why they're doing it. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I've seen things emerge on the public safety conversations and housing conversations where there's so much lack of understanding and I think I need to respond out of emotion and really quickly. Um, so I guess for me, I, I would see those as really heavy issues, not mm-hmm. just about the decisions that I'd be making, you know, in the Senate, but like how is it that we call in our community and be transparent? Mm-hmm. You know, th- this is why. This is the issue. Like when someone, you know, people respond to very quick talking points, and I think Democrats in general are not the best at condensing and making things easily digestible. I've spent my whole life doing exactly that. Mm-hmm. So whether that's translating for my mom, who's limited English, or my family, my neighborhood, my apartment complex, you know, whatever that was, they're like, go, go get Yasmin in there. Mm-hmm. Like, she'll, you know, she'll figure it out. And I think it's as really that simple as how do you take these issues? And they're not, the thing is, those same issues are not just exclusive to the 27th, mm-hmm. right? So that's why it's a statewide right. approach, because everywhere is feeling that, mm-hmm. everywhere. Um, but yeah, I think to me, it's how do you, how do you not only make decisions that align with the community that you're serving because it's not you don't elect someone to come in and just be Yasmin right I mean you elect them because you want yeah you know if it's Yasmin uh, to be the spokesperson right and I say that in third person because I I don't want to jinx anything by saying me but whoever whoever that person is um you know but I but the the purpose is to represent the people it the purpose is to represent the community and sometimes people forget that Mm -hmm. Um, but part of that is not only just taking what you think the community wants you to do, but coming back and reporting back mm-hmm. and telling the community what you did and why. Like, that's that's the piece that I think sometimes gets a little bit lost. Yeah, I think that's hard on some um, legislators to do that, come back to the people you serve and answer to them. I think it's uncomfortable sometimes. It's really uncomfortable. I mean, really uncomfortable. I could imagine. I, I, I don't do it, you know, directly, but mm-hmm. I know, you know, I obviously staff someone who does, and mm-hmm. it, it makes it makes sense. I mean, but I do think that people generally are capable of chewing gum and walking at the same time. I think yeah. people are empathetic and interested, and if you just are honest, even if they disagree, at least they come out with, like, some sense of, like, trust and engagement in the mm-hmm. process. Mm-hmm. I, re- I really just do believe that. So it's hard. Legislating is hard. It is hard. I mean, I say that without even having the yeah. opportunity to legislate. Just an observer, I'm like, it, it's... Yeah, it's a, yeah. a lot of effort to get things done. That's definitely true. Well, you're in now. You're one of the, the three finalists. So what do you... Th- Let's assume you get it. What changes? Do you stay in your job at the AGs also? Because the legislative job is supposedly a part-time job, although I'm right. not sure it really is. Well, with my current role, it would not—I mean, whether it's a real or perceived conflict. It just I mean, I think work. it wouldn't work. Yeah. And, and I think that, that, again, that sort of trust with the public is really important. So, And, and the four months technically that I would be—or depending on whether mm-hmm. it's an even year or an odd year— um, you know, the time I would be there is the time that the legislative director job is also. So right. logistically, you know, realistically, it's just it's a no go. I think mm-hmm. if I had an opportunity, you know, to look for something else that seemed like a good fit in the AG's office, mm-hmm. I don't think it would be part of the core leadership team anymore. I don't think yeah. it'd be on legislative affairs specifically. I would be open. 
honestly, I don't know what to expect um, coming out of this legislative session and, you know, with the potential to, to, well, with the requirement to run Mm -hmm. um, in in November 2022. I think at this point, I'm just sort of remaining pretty open to Mm -hmm. life's possibilities um, and just trying to focus on the on that piece. I think once I, you know, if it comes out that the, the special election happens and, you know, I'm I'm in there for a few years and I have capacity to think about something else. But my priority from the minute I decided that I was going to pursue this was to pursue this with my whole heart. Okay. So, Do you have the support you need um, in your life, in the community? Amongst, I mean, do you have the people who are like there for you as you go through this? Yes. Um, although I, I will admit that when all of this was coming up, I mean, it, it is expected to be part time. I mm-hmm. can tell you that legislators that I've interacted with from, you know, larger, larger populated, you know, larger cities, it's it's really not. Right. Um, you know, there's a lot of issues that happen the whole rest of the year that people expect that you'll engage on. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I when this first the opportunity first popped up, that was my biggest concern because mm-hmm. I don't just support my, you know, my husband and my son, I also support my mom and my brother mm-hmm. and extended family. And yeah. so, you know, I'm that person that they go to when a car breaks down mm-hmm. or something happens. But I kid you not, this is where I'm like, the universe in my life, you know, whether it's Allah, God, universe, whatever anybody believes in, the day that I was considering this, my husband didn't answer the phone the whole day. And I was like, this is so weird. Mm-hmm. And he's been having a private practice. He's worked four days a week. We've been barely keeping the lights on because we're mm-hmm. like, if we just keep it open. Right. He got a job offer from, from a firm, actually, that um, he's he hoped he would apply to before COVID. Mm-hmm. And they were in his building. And apparently they saw him. And they are like, how the heck are you still, <laughs> still here? And he's like, barely. Right. So he comes home with an offer from this firm. And I kid you not, I was like— well, gosh, if I needed any sign yeah. that this might be a chance for me to do not just what I love, but like personally inspiring, personally scary, out on a limb, you know, type thing, like it was a golden opportunity mm-hmm. to be able to do that. So in that regard, which is a real issue, it's why a lot of people yeah. don't actually run for office, um, you know, is because we have real lives and families and things that we need to pursue and are not independently wealthy or right. have that opportunity and— Goodness knows that, you know, student loans, I am right. a, <laughs> I have the, the burden and the benefit of having, you know, through that system. So, so much anxiety. But aside from that, I have, I have an incredible group of, you know, women and non-binary friends mm-hmm. that I think, I don't even know how it's happened over the last like five or six years to have developed this. And I think, I mean, I guess we've always taken every opportunity to show up for each other mm-hmm. and we're all motivated, but we all come from like, I call it the school of hard knocks mm-hmm. and we've all found each other sifting through this like political universe, right? I guess of different issues, whether it's at the legislative side or just organizing around again, getting, getting other folks elected. Um, and I wouldn't be able to do it. I mean, if you'd asked me this five years ago, mm-hmm. I'd have been scared to death and just completely on my own. But you know, I, I text my friends, and next thing you know, I had a friend come over with two big garbage bags full of, like, all of these amazing, like, she's like, I heard you need to be senatorial. I've got some clothes for you that I've been <laughs> I've been keeping. The other person's like, I heard you've got all this campaign stuff. Like, let me drop off some food. Let me give you a gift card. Let me, like, I mean, that's, you. you I don't think that you can do anything like this unless you've got the support of 
community and folks in your life. I just, and it'll, I mean, it's just lonely. Yeah. I've seen elected officials. It, it's incredibly lonely. Um, and then having worked for the only woman of color in the Senate at the time, um, boy, you know, having just a pat on the back or a text or a call, um, it's it's changed now, I think, to, mm-hmm. you know, in a, in a different way. But I plan to do the same thing I always do, which is figure out how we can um, support each other, mm-hmm. how folks that are, you know, it, agree on on issues with me like how how can we because none of us can do it on our own right i kind of feel like that way about life yeah i don't know who does it on their own nobody does it on their own even when people look at me and they're like man you have done all of this stuff i'm like not by myself i haven't Mm -hmm. definitely not by myself yeah yeah well and with that in mind are you ready to run a campaign in 2022 and i say in 2022 but are you ready to start running a campaign the minute you get appointed Yes. So I, the minute I decided that I wanted to pursue this opportunity, I treated it like a campaign. So, I mean, one thing I know how to do is just work really hard. It's the only thing. I'm like, what do you need to get it done? Sort of that, you know, legislative assistant mentality is just the mentality I've always had. Um, so for me, I'm like, okay, if I can map out and, and being able to listen to other people that have done it well. Mm-hmm. I, again, nobody ever does it alone. Um, and I don't, think we should. So I engaged people that I knew that were successful. And I'm like, what does it take? Mm-hmm. Okay, I've got a list of, you know, 51 folks. I think at that point, it was like 57 before the list got cleaned up. I was like, okay, well, what do I do? You need to engage them. Awesome. I got in my car and I started knocking on doors. Um, you know, that's, so I would, the minute I knew what needed to go into it, I was committed. And I've been committed ever since. So if it's not me, I don't know what could have been done differently. I would mm-hmm. defer to the wisdom of the the people that have the you know opportunity to make that decision. But you know when I'm when I'm focused on something, I I'm all in. All right. So, so next week is the county council meeting, and they're going to make yeah. their decision. After all of this, and it's been kind of a whirlwind. Um, what's your takeaway from this whole experience? What do you sort of think? No, no matter what happens. Here's what I'm taking away from this. The biggest takeaway is honestly what an honor it's, it is to have been on a slate with really incredible candidates. I mean, I think whether it's, you know, Dr. Green or, or whether it's, um, you know, Desiree or anybody else, I was like, everybody on here, you know, I think is a good person wanting to do the right thing. Obviously, in my heart, you know, the diversity piece and getting people of color elected is, is really important. But again, even beyond that surface level and, and more about the lived experience, I heard a lot of lived experience. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that it's an honor to do that. I do, you know, like any process I've been through, I think there's opportunities to reflect. Um, I think in some ways this this was a new and welcomed opportunity that everybody is learning from. But I think the process itself and the way that um, – and it's not exclusive to a party, but mm-hmm. I think the, the opaqueness of these processes, we gotta, we got to figure out how to do that. Because it took me like almost two weeks to understand the dates, right? you know, to understand what list was the right list. And mm-hmm. like I'm fairly astute on – you know, Paul, I've never run an actual campaign. I've mm-hmm. never advocated for myself. But I was like, this is – so complicated. Mm-hmm. I mean, even folks within the party didn't really know how to explain the rules. I think the first time we got an idea of, or, or really engaged on it was at least two, or two, maybe three weeks in. Yeah. With all due respect to everybody involved, I think everyone was scrambling to figure it out, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's not like someone was gatekeeping the knowledge or something. Um, 
I also, if I, you know, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm a little bit sensitive to be a little bit vulnerable here. I'm a little bit sensitive to the brown-black divide mm-hmm. that, that's sort of come up in mm-hmm. this process. Mm-hmm. Not a little bit, a lot. Mm-hmm. It, it sits with me. Um, how we might be able to navigate differently or build a bench, you know, sort of working on the sort of building a bench components that yeah. I think could really help us get through this in a future process. But You know, I talked a little bit with with Desiree about this, but one of the the observation that I had, and we mentioned when we were um, on break about code switching, the observation I had was that um, if you came out very strong and passionately as a as a black person, a black woman in particular, um, quite a number of the white people were uncomfortable with that. And and I think you've sort of figured a way of maybe even unconsciously knowing how to speak to your audience. Yeah, I mean, I think I've developed that over, you know, over time, particularly in my professional, well, I think both in my lived and professional experience. Probably the first time I really had to figure that out was actually working at a restaurant. Mm-hmm. So I worked at Ferelli's when it was like the one in Lacey, right? Oh, yeah. Which is pretty conservative on values when people come in. Mm-hmm. Um, I was probably one of two people of color who worked there. I think the other one was related to me, right? Yeah. <laughs> so there were my sister and my brother worked there too. So I feel like, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a real thing. It's a real thing. And if people don't want to name it, talking about race is incredibly uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for people that are black and brown even mm-hmm. to talk about, you know, race and, and colorism and all those things. I think I understand that. I think um, I think it's unfair. You know, I, I think it's really unfair that I think we have to code switch, which is why, I'd, you know, I say I say sometimes that my code switch and the way that I've Come about. Do I, I hope that other people aren't forced to code switch in that same way in the future. I hope that we can diversify our leadership and and folks where people don't have to feel trained that way. Um, but I, gosh, I don't know how we resolve it. But mm-hmm. I recognize it. Mm-hmm. That's what I'd say, Evelyn. And you know, I personally was very inspired by Desiree's comments mm-hmm. um, at the at the LD. I was like, I'm texting someone. I don't know if I'm supposed to react with emotions on right. somebody else's comments, right. but I did numerous yeah. times because I, I think she does speak truth to power. Um, but it's a reality that we lived in, so mm-hmm. or we, that we live in. And how do we, how do we figure that out mm-hmm. together? I think that's where, again, being acutely aware of being on the brown side of the brown-black divide because— a lot of the conversations that I've been focusing on have actually been within communities of color. Mm-hmm. How do we address our spaces to make sure that we're collaborating and working together? Because we really, sh- we really need to be unified on the sort of every, you know, you know, on like how how we lift each other up and how potentially my my framing of something doesn't disrespect yeah. Desiree's framing of something. Both are equally powerful, equally mm-hmm. true. Um, and I hope we can. I hope we can do better about that. I yeah. Do. I don't know how we do it until we come together. But I will say I'm excited to to get to know her. I, mm-hmm. I'm excited to know Dr. Green as well. Although you know he hasn't been as vocal. I think on uh, on some issues in the in the forum, right? I, um, uh, to his credit, though, his lived experience sounds amazing. So. It does. Yeah, I haven't made an appointment to interview him yet. I'm still hoping to do that because. Yes, I think he's got some really, really fascinating yeah. stories to tell me. And both of both of them, I have mutual friends with. That mm-hmm. just you know, when, when some when you hear enough people sort of rant and rave about how awesome someone is, you're like, at some point, I'd love to meet you. Right, absolutely. Um, but I, you know, this is an opportunity that that 
I want and I want to do right by um, everyone, mm-hmm. including Desiree mm-hmm. um, and including Lamont. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope for that whatever shakes out of this, we can come together and give feedback, unified feedback on how to make this process better. That would be nice. Anytime, you know, it's engaged in the future in the 27th or otherwise. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you the opportunity. So if any final thoughts, anything that we haven't talked about that you'd like to make sure um, you have an opportunity to say something about? Yeah, this is always a hard one. Um, you know, I think we, we talked a little bit about it on the break, but, you know, I think coming into this process with the professional experience that I have and, and I'm, you know, being an attorney and all of these things that I think are really sort of like shiny, mm-hmm. shiny objects, right, to folks, right. I, I would offer that the real reason I have even wanted to attain those milestones was really to be able to advocate for people who have gone through things similar to me and not just people who have gone through experiences that I think generally, no matter what, we really want to be good. We Mm -hmm. want to do good by our neighbors our you know, our family, our friends. I believe that. But I think the system fails so many people. So, you know, when I decided law school, it was like, God, my mom was like, oh, you asked so many questions. Like, you should just go to law school. You should mm-hmm. just be a lawyer, you know, because that's what immigrant families in particular, maybe all families, but are like, that That seems like the right profession for you. Um, but again, just questioning systems, like that's where my heart actually is. It just so happens, I think, that I have been blessed with the mm-hmm. opportunity to have others see in me something and give me that next chance and give me that next chance. And I just really hope that people of the 27th see the same thing and... That, well, at this point, it's the county council up to the right. county council. I hope that the county council members are, you know, willing to extend that same opportunity and give me a chance to advocate. Not because I've worked for great folks, although they think that's really good preparation and experience, and I'm grateful for it. But because I, I want to do the work. Mm-hmm. And you're ready. And I'm ready. Yeah. All yeah. right. Well, we'll close there. Thank you so much, Yasmin. We'll be very interested to see what happens next week. Me too. <laughs> Thanks, Evelyn. Thank you. Did you know Channel 253 is member-supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. Crossing Division is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Nerd Farmer, Interchangeable White Ladies, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounders B-Team, Citizen Tacoma, What Say You, and Gimme the Mic. This is Channel 253.